1: Well, here at at New Life, we've we've not been shy at addressing the hot button topics and political topics of the day. We've talked about things like abortion and gender equality and yet the differences between genders as well. Homosexuality, racism. Uh, And we we address these things not because we're trying to be controversial in any way. We're not trying to, you know, garner clicks and and that sort of thing. Uh, In fact, if given the opportunity, I, I likely would have preached on something else each of those weeks. Found something that was far more, um, you know, easier or, or or more palatable, I guess. Uh, because despite what what some people think, I'm not a huge fan of conflict. I'm not afraid of conflict, but I don't go looking for it. I don't. I don't actually enjoy it. But here at New Life, we've chosen to face those issues head on. Uh, in part because when you go verse by verse through the Scriptures, as we're doing, you 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 have to. You you can't just avoid it. You can't just say, "Well, we're going to skip this passage." Um, you're forced to face these issues. And I, and I really do think that's to our advantage. That's not to say that topical preaching is, 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 you know, doesn't have its role, it doesn't have its place. I, I think it did. But if we only stuck to topical preaching, it would be much easier for us to avoid some of these difficult passages and just kind of tickle our ears with, with parts of scripture that are, are pleasant and nice to hear. Well, this morning is not one of those mornings, though. This morning, uh, we're going to address one of those difficult passages in God's Word that probably when you when you hear it, and when you start to think about it, some of these passages, likely you're going to cringe. Likely, your response is going to be something like, did, "Did the Bible really say that?" Or that's that's not good. I don't I don't. How do we, what do we do with that? So those are the passages that we want to kind of head on uh, attack or you know head on, and and it's okay to have those responses. By the way. Um, you know, it it's not easy to understand the scripture, are we? And and that's that's okay. Our our challenge is to kind of wrestle through them and try to understand them as best we can, particularly in this twenty first twenty first century world. So let's read our passage this morning. It's in Ephesians chapter six, verses five to nine, and um, and then we'll then we'll pray. Slaves, be obedient to your masters according to the flesh. Now you can see where we're going with this this morning, right? Uh, With fear and trembling, and in the sincerity of your heart, as to Christ, not by way of eye service as men pleasers, but as slaves of Christ, doing the will of God from the heart, with good will render service as to the Lord and not to men, knowing that whatever good thing each one does, this he will receive back from the Lord, whether slave or free. The masters do the same thing to them, and give up threatening knowing that both their master and yours is in heaven and there's no partiality with him. I'm tempted to close in prayer at this point, but we're not, we're gonna, we're gonna open in prayer though. But let's pray. Father, we, um, we're, gonna, we're gonna tackle a difficult topic. We're gonna address something that uh, is really hard for us to understand that you would include certain passages. And we wanna come at it though in a very honest way in a, not in a trite way, not in a way trying to dismiss these passages, but really wrestle with them and understand what is it that you're trying to say to us? Why did you say it this way? And what is it that we can understand and apply in our lives today? And so again, I am desperately in need for you to be our teacher, especially this morning, Father, that I pray that you would, you would focus all of our minds, focus our, our understanding, and, and be the teacher through me and, and to each of our hearts as we, as we listen to this. In your name we pray, amen. Well, I think the, the number one question we have to ask ourselves from what we just read is, did God just endorse slavery? That, that, I think that's the big question. And, and I think it's an important question for us to ask and to answer because quite frankly, the Bible has been used not only to justify slavery, but actually to command slavery goes even further in that way there for example there are passages like in genesis chapter nine that's the passage where noah gets drunk after the flood and he ends up naked and his son ham gets all you know sees it and and i think he he did some things because i think it was more than just seeing it um but the result of that was canaan ham's son was cursed to be a slave to his brothers and so this passage has been used uh, as a justification of the enslavement of people from Africa, and and because they were seen as to be the descendants of Canaan. In fact, there even exists something called the Slaves' Bible, and and the Slaves' Bible was the Bible that the masters, the slave owner, would give to the slaves. Uh, being Christian, give them, but what they would do, I think, interesting and important to note, is they would omit certain verses. They they would omit certain verses as a means to to. Uh, to use religion to justify their ill treatment and their poor treatment of people. And then you have atheists. Atheists have used these passages to, uh, to justify why they dismiss or they criticize or defame the name of God, car- calling him immoral, for example. Which to me is, I mean, if you're going to have a moral argument about God, you have to admit that he exists. But that's, that's another argument altogether there. But, but if we don't face these questions head on, then either we're guilty of ignorance, willful ignorance at that, or worse, listening to some of these, these atheists, our faith will be easily uh, dismissed, dismissed or diminished or, or fall apart and crumble. So we need to answer the question, does a loving God command or endorse or even condone slavery? And if so, is he in fact truly loving them? Now, if you do a a simple YouTube search or Google search on that question or on that topic you will come up with a plethora of teaching and articles and videos that are, you know, five minutes long, you know, read or or watch that that very quickly dismiss why that's not the case. However, it's not that simple. And, and I say that because you do a little bit more searching. And again, you will find atheists who will use the Bible. They will use not just the passages that were used to refute the, that idea that God condoned slavery, but they'll use that passage in the next verse or a couple more verses to show that their arguments that the, the believers are making don't hold water. And so it's it's not as simple as as people have made it out to be. So that being said, God doesn't condone the slavery. He doesn't endorse the slavery. That's that's not what we're saying here. Um, however, the answer is far new, more nuanced than our Twitter world would like it to be. So it's going to require some understanding and some background. So I want you to kind of put your thinking caps on with me. And and we're going to walk on a bit of a rabbit trail on a journey to try to understand this before we can really begin to tackle our our passage this morning. But today, when you and I, when we think of the term slavery, our minds typically go back to the the large number of African-Americans or Africans, really, that were, were kidnapped and then sold into slavery. And so they would be kidnapped by fellow Africans who were then sold not just to European slave traders but also to, to Arab or Muslim slave traders. And, and they were leaving the continent on both sides. Um, and so really, if you were an African, you didn't know who to trust, right? The, the, whether it be Arab, whether it be the Europeans, whether it be your fellow person, you didn't know who was going to, to kidnap you and, and sell you into slavery. And, and that form of slavery was very much race-based. And, and what I mean by that is that there was the belief that one group of people were inferior, and therefore only existed to serve as slaves. Again, using that passage in Genesis 9 as a, as a pretext for that. Uh, now, fortunately, the, the practice of this, uh, the transatlantic slavery, at least, so where Europeans, and particularly the British, were kidnapping or, or uh, taking Africans off of the continent and bringing them over either to Europe or to America, that was abolished uh, in, on, uh, on March 25th, 1807. Largely due to the efforts of one William Wilberforce, who was a British MP who was led largely due to his faith in Jesus Christ. And so he was a brother in the Lord. And because of his belief, he led a long battle to, to eventually abolish the, the transatlantic slavery from the British side of things. However, it would continue on for almost another 60 years until the U.S. Civil War was fought. And eventually then slavery was abolished in, in America. Now, again, it would have been abolished in Canada in, in 1807. But that's not to say that slavery doesn't exist today. I mean, slavery has existed pretty much soon after the fall in the garden and goes on to today. And will continue as long as there's evil in this world. Let's, let's make no mistakes about that. And so it's happening today in sex trafficking, in child labor. The, the Uyghur Muslims in, in China uh, have many have called slavery where they've been forced into internment camps to work as as, picking the cotton in the fields there. And so it's very much slavery forced upon them and also race-based in that sense. But slavery isn't always race-based. It's not limited to that. In fact, more often, it wasn't about race. It was more about one nation defeated another nation and in that process of defeating that nation, not only would you take the the riches of the gold and the treasures and and you know all the other stuff of that, you would take a group of workers to become your slaves and whether they would be building the infrastructure the roads the the buildings the the temples of of that place or they you know often would use the women to to work maybe and serving in the home or even worse in terms of sexual slaves and so That's always been going on, and that's the kind of slavery that we'd be reading about when we're reading in in the scriptures, in both the Old and the New Testament. So let's take a brief look at some of the passages, in particular in the Old Testament. And and again, we're going to look at these. Some are nicer than others. Some are more difficult than others. Um, But we're going to start with trying to understand the Hebrew slaves. And so uh, a Hebrew could become a slave uh, to other Hebrews, but only for up to six years. After six years, they were set free. And and so Deuteronomy chapter 15, verses 13 and 14 describes it this way, that after these six years, when you set him free, you shall not send him away empty-handed. You shall furnish him liberally from your flock and from your threshing floor, from your vine vat, wine vat, you shall give to him as the Lord your God has blessed you. And, and so what we see here is that basically after six years of serving as a slave, you got a retirement party and you didn't just get a gold watch. They actually let you go and kind of set you up for success. They set you up that you are now able to survive and, and become profitable uh, afterward. And, and that, was, that was written into how you were to treat one another. And God would remind them because you once yourselves were slave, and, and so that would happen. And, and yet it doesn't take away the fact that God didn't abolish slavery. He didn't, he didn't prevent it from happening. He's actually acknowledging it happening. Now, interesting enough, though, the slave would have an option. After the six, six years, he may decide he doesn't want to leave, that that he actually would want to stay as a slave, which I think tells us something about the conditions in which that person would have been living and operating it. And, and so what would, that would happen is he would be called a bond slave. And so later on in verses 16 and 17, it God describes it this way, it shall come about if he, your slave, if he says to you, I will not go out from you because he loves you in your household. Since he fares well with you, then you will take an awl and pierce it through his ear into the door and he shall be your servant forever. And that's what we'll call the bond slave. In fact, that was a term that the apostles would often use to describe themselves and what we would be to God. We would be bond servants or bond slaves of God. Willingly subjecting ourselves to him as our Lord and our master. And and so it's not this brutalized slavery that we would have known from what was happening in the South, in the U.S., and and in parts even in Canada as well and throughout the British Empire. But that doesn't mean that all slavery is okay or, or fine. I mean, why would anyone choose to become a slave? Because that was what was happening here in the Hebrew case. You were choosing to become a slave even in the those first six years, never mind, as a bond slave, or as a bond slave. And the reason you would choose slavery is because you couldn't pay off your debts. It was sort of like the last option. They didn't have a welfare state. They didn't have, you know, governments to provide protection and so forth. And so what you would do is you would turn to someone, a master who was able to take on your debt. And provide and protect you. And so they would pay your debt, but also look after you for those six years while you work. And then if you, if you found a good place to work, you may choose to live there and work there forever. And, and so that would be the case for a Hebrew slave, fellow Jews. But there's a different set of rules for foreign slaves. You start to see some of our problems that we're looking into here is that these foreign slaves were treated differently. Now, these foreign slaves would be from, from the conquered nations that Israel conquered when they arrived in Canaan. And they were to be considered property. They could be bought, sold, and passed down from one generation to another. That's right. That's that's in Scripture. That's That's not... Some of the, the good stuff here. Now, again, I do think it was different than the racial slavery that we have known about in the African slaves. Because in that case there, those African slaves, they were seen as inferior and only good for slavery. It's in this case here, it would be one nation conquering another nation. But to be honest, that's 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 not better. That's 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 still stepping in something sticky and smelly. That's not good stuff here. And And so the reality is God. God didn't prevent it. Now, what he did do, though, he did specifically outlaw the kidnapping of people and sold into slavery. So in Exodus 21 and verse 16, God says, he who kidnaps a man, whether he sells him or is found in his possession, shall surely be put to death. And so this idea, this practice of kidnapping people for slave trade, God says that was abhorrent and he, he, he abolished that. However, in the conquering of nations, he didn't abolish that. Well, there are more problems we have with Scripture and slavery. So let's face those ones head on. So again, still in Exodus 21, beginning in verse 20, uh, Moses writes, uh, From God, if a man strikes his male or female slave with a rod and he dies at his hands, he shall be punished. So that's good. You kill your slave, you don't get off scot-free. You kill your slave, you will be punished. You will have to, to pay for that. But, verse 21, next verse, however, if he survives a day or two, no vengeance shall be taken, for he is your property. So apparently you're still allowed to beat him, just don't kill him, is what God's saying. Don't go over top on the beat. Again, that's that's what scripture says. What do we do with that? Well, that was one of those verses that I think the atheists would use to kind of show that, that this idea of slavery wasn't, you know, comfortable. It wasn't just this, you know, they had this union and, and workplace laws to protect them. They were still being beaten. Now, God does go on to say, you know, in verse 26, that if a man strikes the eye of his male or female slave and destroys it, he shall let him go free on account of his eye. And later on, he talks about, you know, this is the eye for an eye and tooth for a tooth idea. And, and so really, I think what we're say, what we're seeing here is that if you went over the top and maybe you didn't kill your slave, but if you maimed him in any way, you had to set him free. And so the beatings couldn't be over the top. But again, if we're honest, he didn't outlaw, he didn't outlaw the beat. And so at this point, really, the best interpretation that we can come up with is that God didn't condemn slavery but he didn't condemn the beating of slaves. That's the best we come up with. The worst is that he actually endorsed it. That's the worst interpretation we come up with. Again, either one is not very good. Well, how do we address it? Now, for some, what they've done is they say, well, that's, that's Old Testament. And, and those Old Testament passages, they belong in the Old Testament. And so really that's a Jewish problem, not a Christian problem. And, and so we don't have to worry about it as Christians. We'll just, you know, pass that off to our rabbis and our Jewish friends and say, yeah, you guys were crazy. Christians were, were different, We're better. But that's not the case, right? There are, there are, yes, passages in the Old Testament, like in Exodus and Deuteronomy and others in Leviticus. Um, but there are also passages in the New Testament that talk about slavery. The one we read in Ephesians in chapter 6 was one of the key passages that was used to justify and, and to endorse slavery. But then there's, there's other passages like in 1 Corinthians 7 that we'll look at. But the whole book of Philemon was written about a slave and, and not, you know, releasing all slaves and so forth. And so just because we're Christians, we can't demis, dismiss those passages. But there's a bigger problem than that the God of the Old Testament is still the God of the New Testament. Right? I mean, Hebrews talks about how, how he has not changed. And, and so we can't just say, well, that's God of the Old Testament. But we got the God of the New Testament, Jesus. They're one and the same. Jesus is the exact representation of that same God of the Old Testament. He hasn't changed. And so we have to understand and wrestle with these passages. We can't dismiss them. We can't ignore them. So, how do we do that? Well, to begin, let's, let's do a little bit of reminder or understanding of how we attack or how we approach the scripture right every time you come to a passage there's always i think four things we need to do to make sure that we come away with the right interpretation or the right understanding and application of it that's what the study of hermeneutics is called and and these four things that you do number one is is observation and what you're doing here is you're you're taking a look at what do you notice in the passage who is the author who is he speaking to what was happening to this group of time what was their context what was their world like um, is he giving a command or is he just kind of giving information? Is he sharing, um, you know, facts of what's happening? Uh, what literary style is he doing? Is, is it a parable or is it a psalm? Is it poetic? Is it is it prophetic about something maybe that's going to happen in the future? Or is it more instructional? Um, are there certain words that are being rep- repeated in the passage? There's, there's all kinds of things that you're trying to observe. And also even observing what's not said can be helpful. So that's the first thing. What do you observe? When you're looking at a passage. The next step you want to do is begin to interpret the passage. But the key here is to interpret it not how do you interpret it for today, but how would the original readers interpret it? And that's what's so critical because you know what we're reading here is a, is a passage that was written to someone else primarily, whether that be the New Testament epistles or even the books in the Old Testament, they were written to another group. Now that doesn't mean it doesn't have something to say to us. It does have something to say to us. But you have to first understand what was the original intent to those original readers that then we can begin to understand what it's going to mean to us. And so you interpret it from that, their perspective. And then that interpretation needs to be correlated. That's the third thing. We correlate it with what other passages would say, because all scripture has to agree. You can't interpret one passage to say one thing and another passage on the same topic saying something completely different. They have to be in agreement. And then finally, the fourth step is now the application. And the application is where we take that interpretation of that, you know, that original listener or reader. And what does that now mean for you and I here in the 21st century? Some 2,000 or more years later. So what do we observe then in these passages? Specifically that passage that we read in Ephesians 6. And number one, Paul doesn't condemn slavery. And, and that not only that, he doesn't, he doesn't command that they're to be set free. And so if Paul isn't commanding that, neither is God, which again, that's led us down this path to kind of address and try to understand well, what is God saying um, about all this slavery? But again, I think here what we need to do is to really interpret it. We have to look beyond our own understanding. We need to, you know, put ourselves in the, the shoes of that first century church, so to speak. So remember, there's there's no Wi-Fi in this world, right? There's there's no smart technology, there's no Google, there's no indoor plumbing, there's no air conditioning. They they've they've got no engines. You know, when when they're measuring horsepower, they're literally counting horses, right? How many horses are attached to your cart? That's how they figured out their horsepower. They hadn't even seen uh, an epic Toronto Maple Leafs collapse in the playoffs, right? So they don't even know what kind of world we live in, right? So so we kind of have to kind of step out of our own world and experience and imagine ourselves in their world. And to get there, we're going to kind of work backward from a, from a larger socioeconomic, political uh, worldview, right? So today in the West, we live largely in a democratic, capitalistic society. And, and that came into existence, you know, during the Renaissance. So around the 15th, 16th century, kind of around that time. And it's not a, you know, a moment where everything switches. It was happening over time. And and we could kind of point to some key moments. One would be, I think, the Magna Carta when it was signed by by King John and, and the Lords, where now for the first time a king was under the law, and and that also created a parliament which was now the, going to lead the nation, uh, and they had the more power than the king did at that point, right? So those are key moments, but it was it was a transition that we were seeing over time, and to kind of oversimplify it and and, and just kind of look at the theory of it. You know, again, oversimplifying it for our purposes this morning, I would say it this way, that democratic capitalism is where each person is equal, in theory, and will have the opportunity, in theory, to advance in life regardless of their starting point. And so basically, what it's noted for is the ability for people to move, the movement within society, both up and down. So what do I mean by that? For example, you have someone like Barack Obama. Who is you know, born in, in relative poverty or you know, relative middle-class, I guess, humble beginnings, and he is able to, in his lifetime, rise up to become the president of the United States, hold the most powerful office in the, in the world at that time. And he was able to get there not because of his birth, not because of his starting point. Or we look at people like Jeff Bezos and, and Elon Musk, who are now the, the, the richest people in this world, again, not because they inherited that wealth, But because of the choices they've made, they were able to advance in society, right? They didn't inherit that through, you know, land and title and so forth. They did it through their choice. Both of those were able to move up within society in that sense. Or conversely, there are people who have moved down in society based on their choices. So that's democratic capitalism. Now, before democratic capitalism, what what this world was largely dominated with was what's called feudalism. And and feudalism is this idea where there was distinct classes within society, and it was nearly impossible to move from one class to another. And and basically, which class you were a part of was simply because you were born that way. So the top of society was the king, and you just won the, the genetic birth lottery, and you were born that way. You were born to become a king one day. And then below the king was the noble class. And how they interacted here is noble class, the the lords, ladies, duchesses, counts, countesses, and so forth. What they would do is they would offer allegiance and loyalty and armies to the king, and the king would in return offer land and title. Because the king, he owned everything. He owned the land. It was his kingdom. But he would offer out, kind of lease the land to these lords and ladies and such in return for their, again, their loyalty and their army, army and taxes as well, because it's all about the money, right? It's all about the Benjamins back then too. But then below the lords and the, and the nobles were the knights, and, and those were the armies, but also the peasants. And so the, what the, the lords would do, the noble class would do, is they would take the land given to them, and they would also sublease it out to these peasants who would work the land and, and you know work, giving them the, the food and the taxes and so forth. But in doing so, then the, the noble class would return their food and money, and protection. So basically, again, the noble class would protect their servants, their workers, these peasants. But they were still free. They were peasants, nonetheless. Now, before feudalism, however, you know, we get to the Gre- Greco-Roman times, but it really it predates the Roman times as well. But this Roman, Greco-Roman time when the Apostle Paul was living, when he's writing these letters to the church in Ephesus, it was ruled by emperors and Caesar. And they would have served as the kings essentially. And, and you'd have Roman citizens, which would very much like be like the noble class, and you'd have the generals like the knights, but you didn't have peasants, you had slaves. And the slaves were the ones that now would, would work the ground. They would work the, the territory belonging to these Roman citizens, belonging to these nobles. Why does all that matter? Well, what I want you to see here is during this time when Paul is writing, slavery was fundamental to the how the economy functions. Now, please understand that that's not okay. That, that doesn't that doesn't whitewash slavery in any way, but it's still a historical reality, right? It, it, it's in a similar way, kind of excluding the morality of it. It's fundamental to how our our economy today functions on on the trading of stock. Uh, that you know, various companies are are available to purchase shares in that are traded on the stock market. That is, if. Whether we like it or not, that's fundamental to how our economy works today. Or, or the exchange of currency, whether it be U.S. or Canadian dollars, or buying something and trading back and forth. That's how our economy functions. That doesn't make it right or wrong. It's not about morality. It's just a, a, a simple fact of history, a fact of reality. And so the people back then, they could not imagine an economy that didn't function with slavery. In the same way, you and I can't function or imagine an economy that doesn't function on money in some way. So, so think about it. For thousands of years in history, and, and there's really only been kind of three long standing, stable, running forms of this socioeconomic, social political state uh, 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 functions this, this time of slavery, heavy slavery, um, time of feudalism, and now this time of, of democratic capitalism. It, things don't change very quickly. Um, especially when power is at stake, because those who have the power don't obviously want to change it. So now we have the question, well, why why didn't God take the opportunity? Why didn't he command a a better or or really a perfect system, a a perfect economy, a perfect society in which people could operate, especially at the, the creation of Israel? You know, in Exodus 20, when we were reading those passages, that's where God gave the law. And so here was his opportunity to create that utopian society. That I think is the great question we need to ask. Why God, why didn't God do that? And the answer to that question, I think we need to, <clears throat> we need to look at, at Christianity a little bit. And what makes Christianity unique, I think is what tells us the answer. Right. So there's, <clears throat> there's a few things that I think set Christianity apart. Number one, it's where God comes to man, right? All other religions, is what does man do to come to God? Whether they be the the pagan religions of of the Roman times, or even today in in Judaism and Hinduism and Islam, it's all about what does man do in his own strength, in his own power to qualify him to be worthy of God. But Christianity is what has God done to qualify man so that God can come to us. And that's what Jesus did on the cross. Right? But here's something else I think is, is interesting about Christianity. Christianity is the only major religion that is not limited to nationality or geography. Think about it. Hindu, for the most part, largely remains in India, where it was born and where, where it remains to this day. And and Buddhism largely, again, remains in the Far East, where it was born and where it remains today. And, and Islam is Started within the Arab world and, and remains largely in the Arab world. And so both geography and nationality for those religions largely defined those religions, but not Christianity. Right? Christianity is different. I mean, it started off with a bunch of Jews in Jerusalem, and then it, it spread to, to the Roman world. And, and by 300 AD, it had actually become the dominant and, and recognized religion within the Roman world. And then from there, it begins to spread and it spreads into Europe and it's now beyond the Roman uh, world and it becomes now central to to European government and in the political realm at that point. but it also now begins to spread into Africa and then eventually it spreads across the pond into North, south, and even Central America and, and into Asia and it's all over the place now. It's all over the world, and it doesn't matter about your the geography or the eth- ethnicity in which you were born. in fact, there are more Christians in China under communist China today than there is in North America and the U S and Canada combined. In fact, there are missionaries being sent from Africa and from South America to North America, to Canada, because there are more Christian than we are here. And, and so what I want you to see again is that Christianity, it is bigger than a nationality. It's bigger than a geography. And so what we see here is Christianity can function and thrive anywhere, in any group, any nationality, with any societal construct, be it under democracy, be it under under some kind of a tribal leader or under a dictatorship, under kings, under emperors, under capitalism, under communism, even under Donald Trump or under Justin Trudeau. It can function under any regime or under any system. And I think this is what tells us our answer here is that God's goal and therefore ultimately our goal as a church then is not to create some ideal political situation in this world. We're not trying to create this ideal kingdom, this Christian nation that the world would flock to. That's not it. And that's why I think Paul calls us ambassadors for Christ in multiple passages. You think about what an ambassador is. An ambassador is not trying to conquer that kingdom. The ambassador is not trying to control that kingdom and get that kingdom to adopt all of its ways. Instead, what that ambassador is doing is they are representing their kingdom to this group. And that's what we're doing. We are representing the kingdom of God to this world, not trying to make this world into uh, follow our kingdom, follow our ways. That's not it. It's not the church's goal to impose the church's morality on the world. That's not what we're trying to do. And, and, and so think about it here. We're not trying to create a Christian Canada. Or for those who are in the U.S., you're not trying to create a Christian United States. That's not it. We're, we have a different goal, a different purpose. Now, before we look at it, what that tells me, though, is I, have to, I can be less concerned about the direction that Canada is going. For example, if Canada were to become a communist nation, Either, either China maybe rises up to become the superpower and they take over the world and enforce their system of government on the, on the rest of us and on us in particular here in Canada. Or whether we voluntarily do that through our, through our, our, our democracy, where we choose this path of, a, of communism or at least a, a, a far more heavily socialistic uh, nation. The beauty of that or the, the truth of that is that the church and Christianity would not just function, but would thrive. In that environment. And, and I say that because take a look at the church in China. Under that communist regime, it is thriving. And, and I I looked at the numbers of, of Christians within China and I found a chart where it was, it was growing, but it was fairly flat until the very end of the 1980s, right around 1989, and then suddenly it took off, just skyrocketed. And so I thought, well, what happened in 1989? And I and I Use my brain. And I remembered this little thing called the Tiananmen Square Massacre. And, and if you don't remember what that is, 1989, a group of students rose up to, to uh, oppose the heavy handedness, the heavy rule of China, China's communist government. And they, they squashed it. They squashed the rebellion with their army and they were brutal. It was a massacre. 1989. And you would think finally now this communist government, they've, they've stamped out any kind, of, any kind of other thinking. And yet the church took off. It grew. And so that's our hope, is that we don't need the, the circumstances of this world. We don't need the governments of this world to figure out the right politics in order for the church to carry out its ultimate goal and its mission. Does that mean that as Christians, we ignore politics, that we, we, you know, as Christians shouldn't run for public office or participate in social change? Absolutely not. Far from it. Right? Remember William, Wilber, William, uh, William Wilberforce, that I talked about in the, in the beginning of the, the 19th centuries and 1800s? Well, 1807 is when they abolished slavery. But his, his campaign for that began 20 years earlier. For 20 years, as an MP, as a member of parliament in, in Britain, he campaigned and eventually led to that, uh, that uh, abolition. And again, but it was largely driven by his faith and faith. In fact, it was after he became a Christian that he began to, to campaign against slavery because of his Christian value and his understanding that it's not okay to own a person in this way. And then you have the Reverend Martin Luther King Jr. And I always like to use the term reverend because that was his title. He was my brother. My brother in the Lord. And he was a pastor. And it was his theology that drove him that these men shouldn't be treated this way, that that civil rights meant that all were equal under God. And that's what led him to 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 make this case. That you are judged not by the color of your skin, but the content of your character. And that dream, I hope, will be fulfilled one day. And and I sadly I see it being regressed, that we're going backwards. But nonetheless, that dream was driven by his Christian value. And then you have Christians who have created countless hospitals, universities. They've, they've done, dug wells for, for impoverished, impoverished groups to find fresh water or, or created water purification because the water's been been tainted in some way. They've taught farming in harsh environments. They've created homes and safe places for, for women and children who've been battered and abused or, or have been caught up in sex trafficking. All of that... Has been created because of their Christian values, because of who they are in Jesus. That that sense of of justice has led them to do that because of the new heart that God's given. And it's my hope that one day we will see the end of abortion, the killing of these, these innocent, unborn babies. And so I think we we as Christians we have a voice, we have a role to play. But we do it in a way that is, it doesn't require us to overthrow the environment, but to use the, to, to operate within the system. See, think about it. the Apostle Paul. It, it wasn't his goal to overthrow the Roman government. In fact, he invoked his rights as a Roman citizen at times in the same way that, that Jesus wasn't trying to overthrow the Hebrew or Roman government. In fact, that's why he was such a disappointment to his people, because they were waiting for a Messiah to set them free politically. And that's not what he was trying to do. He was trying to he came to establish his kingdom, the church, and he didn't need to overflow the political kingdom. And so Paul's mission and our mission today as a church really has been the Great Commission of Matthew twenty eight, where if we kind of paraphrase it, I would say it this way: that as you go about your life, make Jesus known to others through both action and and word, inviting them also to become a disciple of Jesus. That's what we're doing today. And, and so it's not overthrowing a government. It's not creating some kind of a, of a, of a society, a utopian society. That's not what we're trying to do. We're, we're changing people individually. So, so let me put it this way. The goal of Jesus and his church is not to change the culture, but to change the hearts and the minds of individual people so that they trust Jesus. And as you do that, as you change Those individual people, inevitably, that will influence and change the culture. But it's a byproduct, not the goal. So that's a giant rabbit trail, a necessary rabbit trail. But now we can return to our passage in Ephesians and try to understand with that, that that Paul wasn't trying to overthrow the government. He wasn't trying to invoke or introduce a whole new way of thinking. Instead, what he was trying to do is how do we live and operate in this world? For him in this Roman Greco, uh, uh, yeah, Greco-Roman world, and and then in the you know the the middle middle, uh, medieval times, how do you operate in a a feudalism system? For you and I here in the West, how do we operate in a democratic, capitalistic society? But if you are in China right now, then this message is for how do you operate under a communist regime there? How do we function? So let's read the passage again. Beginning in verse five, slaves be obedient to those who are your masters according to the flesh, with fear and trembling, in the sincerity of your heart, as to Christ, not by way of eye service, as men pleasers, but as slaves of Christ, doing the will of God from the heart with good will, render service as to the Lord and not to men, knowing that whatever good thing each one does, this he will receive back from the Lord, whether slave or free, and masters. Do the same to them and give up threatening, knowing that both their master and yours is in heaven and there is no partiality with him. All right, let's, let's first understand what it meant to these, these initial readers, to these actual slaves. Basically what Paul's saying to them is, is work hard, show respect from the heart, right? That's, that idea with fear and trembling isn't to be terrified of them and scared of them, you know, hiding in the corner it means to show them respect in the same way that we're to have fear and trembling towards God. It's, it's this colloquialism, this phrase of honor and respect. And so show respect, but not just on the outside, actually from your heart serve with integrity, right? This idea of, of not just eye service, right? You know, okay. The boss is watching. So mash is watching. So make sure you're, you're behaving well right now, work hard. And then when he turns the corner, just kind of kick back a little bit, No, work hard, whether your master's watching or not watching. Doesn't matter. But notice he's not saying run away. He's saying work hard for your your master. Now, does that mean that he was actually condoning and and demanding slavery? Not at all. In fact, in 1 Corinthians, Paul's going to say that if you can be free, then take the opportunity to be free. You know, it's good to, to not be a slave. And, and in, it's why today it's good that we don't, we don't allow slavery. It's still happening, but not legally. It's not allowed and it's looked down upon and it's, it's condemned in every way because it's good not to be a slave. But here's the thing, the key thing is they didn't need to be free to be free. You look at 1 Corinthians 1, uh, 7, verses 21 to 23. He says, were you called while a slave? Meaning, did you come to know Jesus while you were a slave? Don't worry about it. Basically, remain a slave. It's OK. But if you're able to become free, do that. Like by all means, if, if you have the opportunity to be free, run, go for it. Like that's a wonderful thing. For he who is called in the Lord while a slave, he is the Lord's freed man. Likewise, he who is called while free, he is Christ's slave. Basically, what he's saying is that if, if you became a believer while you were, were a slave, you're free in Jesus and you can continue serving as a slave, but you are free. But if you were already free, you're still Christ's slave. Basically what he's trying to say is we're all equal. And finally, in verse 23, you were bought with a price. Do not become slaves of men. So again, he's not con- endorsing the slavery. He's not commanding slavery in any way. That would be one of those verses that would have been cut out in the, sl- in the slave's Bible. But he's saying you don't need your freedom to be free, your freedom is in Jesus, and He's provided for. You. And so, if you are a slave, treat your master well, treat him with respect, and work hard. Well, what about the master? All those same things, right? Because it's in the same way. All those same things: working hard and so forth. But on top of that, stop the abuse, stop the cruelty, treat your slaves fairly, act with integrity. Always remembering that that you know as their master you're serving them and, and on top of that you're equal and you all serve one master together and there's no partiality with God now if you were a master reading that, that at that time that would have been unheard of that you have to serve your slaves that you you owe them to treat them well that they are of equal value to you that, that didn't compute back then. And yet that's the reality and the truth of what they're saying. So in Galatians 3, verses 27 and 28, Paul says this, for all of you who are baptized into Christ, all of you who have named the name of Jesus and are saved, have clothed yourself with Christ. There is the, ne- neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free man. There is neither male nor female for you are all one in Christ Jesus. And he's, not, he's not abolishing you know, again, the slavery or the, the differences between gender in any way, but he's acknowledging that there is equality. That men are equal to women, women are equal to men. Jew are equal to Greek, to Gentile. Gentile is equal to Jew. And slave is equal to, to master and master is equal to slave. Equal value, equal worth. And that would have been crazy for them to hear that. That would have blown their minds. And, and, and they, to see that they're equal and yet still have different roles. So how do we now apply that for you and I today? How do we, what's the application of that? Well, thankfully, and I, I, by all means, thankfully, we no longer live in a political environment that condones, endorses, or even allows slavery. Again, it's still happening. We're recognizing that, but not legally. And that's a good thing. That's a wonderful thing. But we do have another environment and we can now apply that, that principle, but not in a slave master way, but as an employee employer way. So to the employee, what's Paul saying? saying, work hard, be honest, and act with integrity, right? Not just as eye pleasers, not just as men pleasers, not just trying to, you know, put on a mask and everyone think you're doing well, you know, so don't spend half your day, you know, checking your Facebook feed at work. No, you put in an honest day's work. You, you show that respect to your boss, even if they don't deserve it, even if they're not a good boss. It doesn't say respect them if they're good, it just says respect them. And so you respect your boss. You treat them fairly. You treat them with that honor and dignity that, that they deserve because the fact that they are the employer. And keeping in mind, ultimately, you're not serving them, you're serving God. And, and he will offer to you that reward that comes with, with that integrity of, of serving well. And, and the reward he's offering is far greater than just a nice salary with benefit. And, and it's not... It's not, you know, you're going to get saved one day, but there is a, an acknowledgement of your trusting him in those moments to show that respect, especially in a time where that boss doesn't deserve the respect. All right. What about the employer? All of that work hard, right? Um, You know, lead by example, show that integrity, you know, don't ask your employees to do something you're not willing to do yourself, right? All of that. And then some right? So show them respect, treat them fairly, pay them fairly. That's an important one, right? If you're making, you know, all kinds of, of, of coin based off, off of their backs, make sure that they're, they're compensated. Well, share that reward because they've earned it for you. Um, make sure their work environment is healthy, right? That it's safe, and that they're, they're not being, you know, overworked and working long hours. And, and if you're only putting in three or four hours and they're working 10, that's not okay, right? You got you to treat them fairly this way. Don't use your authority as a tool to bully your employees into your beat right? Instead, you earn their trust through respect and care and love. Show them that you care about them by caring about their hearts and where they're at. Remember the lesson of the bond slave. Right, the bond slave who was free but chose to go back. He chose that slavery because of his love for that, his boss and the household of his boss. Be that kind of a boss where they choose to stay there, not because they have to, not because it's convenient, but because they actually respect you and they love you and they, they want to offer themselves to you. You see, if employees know that you will go through a wall for them, they will offer the same in return the good ones will. There are some who don't, but the good ones will. And those are the ones that are keepers. And, and they will go beyond just the, the paycheck now to make sure that everyone's successful, that you are successful as a boss, but your whole business is successful as well. And and I, and I see that in so many of the people who, who are bosses in new life. And if not, we'll have conversations out of love because we love you so that you ultimately will be more successful in it. Again, as as an employer, you got to think bigger than the short term. Yes, you can whip, you know, proverbially whip your employees and and get a quick return on profit, but you'll have such a high turnover, people will be out the door and your business will suffer in the long run. But if you treat people well and you pay them well and you work hard for them, in the long run, your business will be far more successful. And finally, most importantly, remember this: you're not greater than them as an employer. You're equal to them. And you all serve the same master. We're all going to answer, we're all going to have to speak to God about how we treated those who were we were ultimately serving as their boss. And, and so we serve them well because they serve our master as well. Let's pray. Lord Jesus. Some difficult topics and difficult passages and understanding, but I pray that, that we will find the hope here, that we don't need to battle and worry about the politics of this world, that whatever it is, wherever we go as a nation, your church will thrive, your church will function, and your goal will be carried out, that your name will be known, and that as we go about life, we can invite people to become your disciples. We can invite people to trust you and to know you and find freedom that this world cannot offer. Find freedom even in the midst of living in this, this godless world up in.
0: So thank you, Jesus, that we can trust you for that. In your name we pray, amen.
1: Well, have a great day, everyone. And uh, if you've got questions or comments, I would love to hear them. Uh, you can, you can yell at me. You can call me a heretic if you want. I, I, I'm not afraid of that. Uh, you can do that, you know, sending me an email or a phone call, or if you want to do it, you know, in our Facebook community group publicly, I'm okay with that too. I, I would love to hear though, what, what did God say to you this morning, especially because uh, what I, and I was talking to Joy about that this week when I, I wish we could have had a conversation about it, uh, because it, it's such a a nuanced topic. And like I said, it's not easily discussed in a five minute video, but I would love to hear from you. And, and so whether it's a comment from this video or, or send me a message, I'd love to hear from you. But um, have a great day and enjoy the sunshine.
0: You've been listening to the New Life Fellowship Podcast. Thanks for joining us. For more great content, please be sure to check out our website, newlifekw.ca and sign up for our mailing list subscribers will receive our The Life in the Apartment ebook that is sure to encourage and bless. Don't forget to follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and subscribe to our YouTube channel to watch the latest services and additional video content. New Life Fellowship is a registered charity that is supported by the giving of partners and friends. All donations will be receded. If you would like to donate, donate at newlifekw.ca. Your giving is highly valued and appreciated. You are loved. Take care.